This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. I'm Amber Hamill, the Community Media Coordinator at Free FM. And I'm Murdoch Ngaho, Māori Media Coordinator at Free FM. I'm not a journalist. I am not a journalist. I'm from Aotearoa. I'm from Australia. I don't know much about foreign ministry, but I do know the Minister for Foreign Affairs. I don't know much about the Minister for Foreign Affairs, but I might know a little bit about foreign ministry. I mean, a bit. Like, not heaps. We've got a new show about foreign ministry. Localising. Global. Aotearoa. It's got to be interesting because we've got the Minister for Foreign Affairs. Call it what you like. We've got the talent. Kia ora and welcome back to another episode of our podcast around foreign ministry and we're really lucky because we actually have the foreign minister joining us, kia ora minister. Kia ora, kia ora. Kia ora. <laughs> thank God you're here. Yes. <laughs> well I won't leave you up to your own devices. Yeah, thank so you. Don't let us make it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So uh, today I was hoping we could talk a little bit about, so we've talked about some of our neighbours and we've talked about uh, our, um, our strategic role within the Pacific and, and whatnot. But I wanted to get onto today kind of a bit more um, specifically about humanitarian kind of crises situations and how foreign ministry has a role to play there and what, how we work with different partners to... Um, to be that good neighbour, I guess. Well, that's a good um, set of things to start to talk about. I mean, uh, a lot of what our foreign ministry does is connect with uh, uh, the country and civil society organisations, but also provide a sit rep of uh, the current state of affairs. So if, for example... There are um, humanitarian issues that need to be responded to. We rely on our post for uh, good, timely information and an assessment of what practical supports are required and what's the best way of being able to deliver that, whether it be through uh, the government and its uh, uh, various um, uh, mechanisms or whether it's through civil society organisations like Red Cross, UNICEF and the like. So, you know, we're very fortunate because we have uh, a number of uh, posts overseas. COVID's changed that a little bit. Um, But it has enabled us to have really good intelligence on the ground about how we might best respond. Yeah, I'm thinking particularly like when... um in the face of disaster, so natural disaster, for instance, and we want to get people the help they need in those kind of crisis moments. And New Zealand, I'm aware New Zealand is part of a, um, an alliance with France and Australia to kind of, um, I think it's called France, to um, stand up those responses really quickly. Um, can you talk a little bit about why France, New Zealand and Australia and how those work in practice? A, a little bit, although I, sh- I should probably jump uh, straight to some examples. I mean, 
effectively there are like-minded countries uh, who uh, see themselves as strong contributors to be, being able to provide humanitarian aid but also uh, being able to respond very quickly in terms of uh, 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 natural disasters and the like. So if I think about the tsunami in Japan mm. uh, and the mass devastation that occurred there, New Zealand was quick to, to offer help and respond. And often that response is very practical. Your first responders in society, um, you know, whether it be your firemen or health um, nurses, doctors or, or things like that, we try and do what we can. Other types of humanitarian aid can be in the form of funding that goes to a civil society organisation to provide like food or emergency packs on the ground or a range of things, medical uh, items uh, and the like. It really depends where in the world uh, the event is, uh, what level of organisation on the ground is able to respond in an immediate and practical way. And then it's an, a question for New Zealand of the level of response. Um, and then, you know, again, COVID has uh, really uh, impacted the way in which we uh, think about how we respond and the timeliness of it. Uh, we've responded in, in many instances during the COVID period of providing PPE gear, uh, mainly to the Pacific, but um, often uh, in areas where we think that there might be um, you know, a need to provide uh, support because there's a vulnerable country, a third world country, we often jump in and do something there as well. well when you talk about the immediate response, is that a duty that the Foreign Ministry Office is in charge of? And when you assess that immediate response, is it always practical first as far as you're sending in our fire people or whatever the immediate response is? It really depends on the nature of the re request. Often there is an ask uh, from the country, uh, so they'll put out a, a general call for help and assistance, depending on what the issue is. Mm. Um, if I go to the Pacific, uh, they have an annual kind of cyclone period, mm. and so we factor uh that into the way in which we provide support to the Pacific. Yeah. Uh, so we know that, you know, there's a period of time every year where cyclones are going to impact across the Pacific and that we are likely to be called on. So it's kind of stand by. Yeah, stand by. And we stand in readiness to help our closest neighbours. Uh, and we have obviously the our defence force to call on to be able to take supplies uh, two places uh, under a, a natural disaster or emergency. Um, but again, our first responders have been key in this area as well. I'm interested to think of New Zealand as recipients of that kind of care and manaki from our neighbours and the global community as well. So I'm thinking, you know, earthquakes and whatnot. How do we ask for that? How does it happen in practice? Look, the most recent uh, thing that comes to mind is uh, Fakati, mm. uh, because so many internationals were impacted uh, by Fakati. Right. Uh, there were all types of assistance uh, to be able to support those who uh, had experienced the severe burn. So while we did the we. Um, undertook the immediate response uh, as as you would expect to get people into hospitals, our hospitals network together to be able to provide the right support for the level of condition that people impacted by Fakati were in and then uh, countries uh, of origin said look we're, we're able to you know, bring our, our people home and then look after them from there and, and I understand that there were other aspects of support that countries helped in that instance so you know 
like-minded countries who see the importance of joining hands uh, when there are struggles um, uh, are quick uh, to put their hand up and, and respond. Yeah, the, the other one is the March 15th shootings. You mm. know, uh, There were a number of uh, Muslim countries who saw that and they rallied around and provided support uh, for families who were impacted by that here in New Zealand. Uh, and again, that had a beneficial impact uh, to the long-term support and uh, care uh, for Fano um, in that instance. In a way, you know, we've talked a lot in this podcast about how so much of foreign ministry is about relationships and expressing New Zealand's values, and uh, um, those kind of tragic incidents are an opportunity to. Um, to be the best in a way, to be your best self in response to those things and really demonstrate how you can care in those moments, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And it goes back to one of our earlier conversations about New Zealand taking a values-based approach to foreign policy. And if we uh, think about our bicultural values, manakitanga is a very strong Mm. uh, part of that type of response to care for others, to... um, Look beyond your own self-interest and say, actually, this is really important. This is about who we are. We care for uh, other people in their time of need. We stick up for the uh, small nations when they they need some support. Um, you know, we don't profess to be everything uh, for everyone, um, but the things that we believe in, we're pretty pretty solid on that front. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I'm wondering in the in those kind of um, after moments, and obviously you weren't. Uh, in this role then, but in those kind of after moments, the role of the foreign minister is what exactly? Do do you call the, the your or do you contact the consulates or how does it actually work? Look, I would have imagined in the instances of March of 15th and also for Cardi, because there were so many internationals impacted, uh, that the ministry would have been involved um at a diplomacy um, bilateral kind of level to have the conversations um, let let the um, partners uh, know what was happening you know uh, but also maintain a good line of sight over what uh, we were doing to take action and that's a really important part of the role of the ministry is to keep channels of dialogue open make sure there's timely communication of information but also if there's a problem are trying to sort it out. I'm just thinking currently we've got some interesting things happening in China. How does the ministry use their diplomacy to not only speak on the issues that may be tough to talk about, as well as leveraging our best practice position to be with China? Yeah, look, I think if we just consider the, the challenges of the now and how we've tried to uh, ensure that we stand up for other things that we believe in. Uh, Hong Kong uh, comes to mind Mm -hmm. and when we think of the way in which uh, democratic freedoms have been impacted, New Zealand has been quick to highlight uh, if the freedom of speech, freedom of the media, uh, democratic participation is infringed upon and is contrary uh, to the uh, uh, the agreement uh, of returning Hong Kong to Chinese um, uh, rule, then New Zealand, like other countries, are very quick to stand up and say, well, actually this infringes those 
kind of international agreements. Um, Xinjiang is another one, uh, and the and the conditions of the Uyghur people. This is really difficult because uh, there are a number of uh, uh, reports around what's happening uh, in Xinjiang with the Uyghur people. New Zealand has continued to express our concern uh, and uh, have called for the United Nations to have an independent uh, person or group go in. Uh, have unfettered access to make an assessment and to be able to report that back in full. Um, you know, that's met with resistance, but we have continued to raise with China. We're really concerned about this. We don't uh, want to have uh, a situation where the freedoms of, of people are such that they're, you know, there are human rights abuses um, reported that we. Um, stand by and watch idly. We're not going to look the other way, right? Yeah, Mm. you know, um, these are and and I think there is a growing expectation, certainly in New Zealand, um, but around the world, that the basic human rights uh, must be defended at all costs. So, you know, and I, I feel it's a generational thing because prior to this time, there was a lot of emphasis on economics and trade. Um, but now kind of the planet and the health of people and the well-being of people have kind of superseded that. So we've got to find this 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 space where we can, again, bring forward the things that make us proud to be who we are, where we are in the country, what we stand for, knowing that there are realities of economics, but it's not everything. Um, and this, you know, the, the, these are the challenging um aspects of foreign affairs and how we as a a small country navigate our way through that. I've heard this before, that Māori and Chinese values are more aligned. So is there a conflict sometimes being the foreign minister when you see Māori and Chinese starting to engage more in trade? And nationally, I suppose, there's more of a, a lens that views China a little bit more counterproductive to the overall well-being of people. Look, I think what's the relationship that Māori have with um, China and indeed many cultures is one of respect because if you understand uh, another culture, you you tend to not judge in the same way as um, a Western view of You're things. already um, living with an understanding of yeah, of difference yeah. and diversity and what it means to be strong in, in your unique diversity and sense of identity. So, you know, there are, there are not the same filters, mm-hmm. put it like that, not mm-hmm. the same filters for people of cultures who, who really are wanting to reach out and create a more inclusive approach to things. Um, and that's a challenge. Um, it's not a challenge for me as Minister of Foreign Affairs. I, you know, the speech I gave to the New Zealand China Business Council was using the analogy or the metaphor of a dragon and a tanifa as a way to articulate uh, the nature of the relationship, which is the dragon and the tanifa might have the same whakapapa going back to one tupuna, mm. but somewhere along the line they chose to live in different parts of the world with a different ecosystem and while there are similarities, there are differences. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the similarities, they recognise what is absolutely unique about their common connection. But in the differences, they understand that they're a part of a different ecosystem with some other 
um, key um, drivers that that um, are important. And you know, when I gave the speech, I'm pretty sure the Chinese audience knew exactly what I meant. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, this this is a way of looking at the world. And I think we can offer a different approach to foreign affairs when we take a, put a cultural lens um, on it. So it's not economics at all cost, but it certainly um, uh, has to take account now of our realities uh, of uh, the climate, the health of the planet, and the health of people, the well-being of people. I think that was really brought home as a kind of core tenet of New Zealand's values when um, New Zealand was going into its first lockdown and basically the Prime Minister said, words to the effect of, I can bring an economy back to life, but I can't bring people back to life so we're going to have to prioritize that you know whereas i think other countries were slower to reach the same conclusion if they ever got there at all and so this idea that we would prioritize the economy at all costs suddenly had a had a very personal um possibility of loss (laughs) if we chose on that path and it was really stark to me anyway that that was not how this was going to play out well, and we're a small enough country to believe that um, we can uh, have that perspective, that people, that people first perspective, because you know we're a country of a whole lot of small towns mm. made up of small communities. Tell me about and it. We're only two. There are degrees no cities separated. here, people. If you're looking, somewhere <laughs> you know, we're only two degrees separated, and there is a very real sense of connection. Mm. Um, and the prime minister also said throughout the whole of COVID. Uh, that you know, um, the best uh, economic response is a health response, yeah. and she was able to call on, you know, the team of five million to rally around and let's all do our bit. And people really felt felt uh, that they were connected to the bigger cause and that they were contributing to it just by ensuring that they um, were looking after themselves and their whanau. Um So you know, it is a very different response and a different whakaro. Um, we've just had the budget um, announcement and, uh, you know, part of our project since becoming a government in 2017 was to move to implementing a wellbeing budget, which wasn't just about the economy, it was about the environment. Which also was globally was pretty wild. Oh, you know, but it, it aligns with the SDGs, the right. Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, absolutely. Um, so I think we are being more consistent uh, in our vision for New Zealand with the aspirations, the global aspirations as well. I think, though, that, that um, it was almost, oh, this sounds horrible in these terms, but uh, hopefully you, you can improve on them, but the... Um, Making that statement, like the best um, economic strategy is a health strategy, was a, almost a proof of concept for a well-being budget. Saying we have to put the we have to put well-being of people and planet. It, it, this, the economy has to serve that, and not the other way around. And, and while it might have raised some eyebrows, you know, when it was in, introduced, this has been a shining example of how accurate that is. Yeah, I think that's right, and. Uh more and more as we kind of go go through this phase and create the new normal you know of, of our post covid reality um, it's going to be apparent to us that uh, we've got to think in a more holistic way and we've got to take steps that have intergenerational impact mm. uh, and that's going to be the um, the test of uh, this this approach uh, that we're taking just i mean 
Let's imagine that your relevant colleagues aren't listening. Do you have Do you have anything <laughs> you want to say dangerous. about the budget? <laughs> <laughs> Was it? What, didn't no, I don't know. Like it didn't. I don't, I don't look, know. I think um, you know our minister of finance uh, said it on on budget day is that we can't consider uh, this budget uh, in isolation of every other budget that's preceded it under our government. Mm. So this is the fourth budget since we became government and there are another two budgets to go in this term and we are building the platform uh, to become resilient. Uh, we're addressing the issues of the now because he's framed this budget as a recovery budget. We are undertaking the reform that's required to ensure that there's greater equity uh, to achieve the outcomes that we need in key areas like health and in housing. Uh, and we are uh, uh, trying to ensure uh, that as a country, when we think about how we position our economic opportunities, we are looking to increase the value of return because we're thinking about the story attached to the kai that we send overseas and pro- how important it is for people now to understand the whakapapa of that kai mm. because it gives you assurance of um, you know, the, the quality of the kai and things like that. So you know, place and provenance now with product is an important part of our economic recovery as well. But in terms of foreign affairs, it wasn't like a flush situation. Do, do you have what you need to do what you need to do? Yeah, foreign affairs is, is, is well resourced. Okay, You've got to remember that across our network, we've had to um, uh, mothball some of our, our missions because of the COVID situation. Yeah, can you talk a bit more about that? How does um, that happen? Well, we've got a number... Now, you, now you're going to ask me for numbers and put me really on the spot. <laughs> Sorry, but I can't do that. Um, we've got a number of missions around uh, the world. During the COVID period, uh, it was evident uh, to us that we were going to come under increasing pressure and perhaps vulnerability around some of uh, those missions. So there has been a decision to mothball. What, what, what kind of vulnerabilities are you talking about? Like, um, if but, by leaving people in place, you would make them. Po- Put well, them, expose them to undue risk, or put pressure on the systems they were trying to support, or well, we've got, you know, countries that have been in, in lockdown for a year because of the COVID outbreak, and effectively your um, people holding posts because often there's there is a mixture of New Zealanders in the post and also staff from from the country uh, supporting the post. Um, you know, we've got to look at uh, some of those uh, challenges and. Um, it's been really difficult for our team overseas. Mm. So, um, you know, the, the, and we can't even imagine the mental uh, challenge of being in lockdown for a year. We were in lockdown oh, right. for four not. weeks. Right. And, you know, we're forecasting that that's created lots of anxiety. But if that's been the case for many countries for a year, um, think about how, how that might impact on our people serving uh, in the mission. So... Yeah, we've we've made um, some decisions, um, which have have meant that we're not travelling. Also, um, we have there's a big money saver. Yeah, yeah. But look, um, well, the price of petrol. Honestly, the 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 budget announcement for foreign affairs was primarily based on the redevelopment of Scott Base because strategically. New Zealand's role in Antarctica, uh, Antarctica is important, but also the role of Scott Base to uh, science, um, research, and also conservation and biodiversity aspirations in that part of the world is world-leading. 
um, and it's a strategically positioned um, role that we we have as well. So that that was the budget announcement under my portfolio. But you know we have still been able to maintain our emphasis on supporting the Pacific with the rollout of their vaccinations, providing PPE gear. The most recent announcement that we made is that we were contributing um, some funding to the um, uh, the rebuild um, and the support, the humanitarian efforts um, uh, post the Israel-Palestinian um, fighting that has just recently happened. And we also provided a bit of support up to Nepal who are really struggling with their COVID. Yeah. So nothing has prevented us. Yeah. Um, the budget hasn't prevented us from doing what we would always do. Good to hear. Um, and, and that's a good thing. We've talked about this a couple of times, which is Antarctica. And, I mean, most Kiwis are probably thinking, what the hell are they doing down there? Why are we there? Why do we need to be there? Why do we put so much Penguins emphasis? Penguins are people too. Yeah, yeah. We've been there for a long time. Yeah. Um, and we've undertaken, I mean, some of our early explorers, um, Scott and Shackleton, you know, have um, been world leading. Because uh, New Zealand's not cold enough, Murdoch. No, no well, they've been world well, leading in, in terms of their, their um, exploration of the area. But look, um, Antarctica, is, as you know, is uh, really cold. Really cold, <laughs> lots of penguins. That's it, you just heard everything um, Murdoch knows about uh, it. More, more darkness than daytime. Um, but it's a it's an important uh, place of Ross dependency and the role that New Zealand plays is strategically significant. There is a lot of interest uh, uh, in Antarctica. Um, there are other countries uh, that are positioned there also undertaking research, also want to... Um, Invest, uh, uh, I guess, some some effort down there because of um, the science um, that's coming out of the place. But all look, what I can say is that Scott Base hasn't been develop, uh, redeveloped for the last forty years. You can imagine how difficult it is mm. to to build down there. So effectively, they've got to build the um, having a bit of a reno, are they? Well, well, they haven't more had than one a reno. For they've got to, they've got to actually re re recast. That whole site, they can only build on the site that they're on. Yeah. So you know, our what we've got to provide for is temporary accommodation, plus rebuilding on the site that they're on, plus upgrading the wind farm because they've got to be pretty much all self-sufficient. That's right. It's not like you can fly in and fly out. You need an icebreaker to get in. We'll be shipping the the buildings in and then deconstructing and shipping the old buildings out. Right now, there's about 12 buildings on site not connected, so you can imagine rigging up, walking in the cold to go to each building. The new build will be kind of three big precincts linked together, able to provide for about 100 uh, people. And from an employment point of view, um, overall, that project build, which will take about six years, about 700 people will be employed, and a lot of the benefits go back to Christchurch. Wow. Yeah, so, uh, you know, the it's... For those people who are really into science research in uh, Antarctica, this is like awesome. a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For New Zealanders, we I think the closest experience we get to Antarctica is in Christchurch at the Antarctica. No, I think Centre. it was in my house this morning. Oh. <laughs> no, it was my Absolutely house. Absolutely Baltic. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <What's that about? laughs> but I mean, they can they can actually go and go and see what what happens down there and uh, through the centre in Christchurch. Okay, right. Well, so they're not just making really good fridges down there. <laughs> <laughs> and igloos. Yeah. One big esky. <laughs> 
Okay, look, we're going to leave this corridor there and we will catch up again with you, Minister, very soon. Okay, kia ora. Kia ora. Awesome. Kia ora, ko Murak tēnei, te kaiwhakarite papa ho Māori ki tuia ngā reo o te hāpuri. Kia ora, it's Murak, Māori Media Coordinator here at Free FM, and we hope you are enjoying all the new Māori-focused kaupapa and kōrero happening on Free FM. Of course, we would love to have more, so if you have kōrero, get in contact with me, Media at freefm.org.nz. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.